Lib Dems should not have the walls wool pulled over their eyes about Nicola Sturgeon of the SNP. They are just as antagonistic and nationalist as, as the Brexit is. Hello and welcome to the Lib Dem podcast. As promised, we have got the leader of the Scottish Lib Dems, Alex Cole Hamilton. Thank you, Alex, for joining us on this podcast. I brought David along as well, who always likes to come in and give the tough questions while I do the nice stuff. So firstly, welcome to the podcast, Alex. Thank you both. It's great to be here. Uh, Obviously, you're in your office at the moment, it looks like. Yes, I'm in the Scottish Parliament um, and I will hot-foot it from this recording to the chamber where I will be grilling the First Minister of Scotland on ambulance waiting times, which are pretty horrendous in Scotland right now. Well, that actually comes to one of the the big questions we get a lot. And actually, unfortunately, a lot from English Lib Dems is actually sometimes, well, well, you know, are the Lib Dems in Scotland really needed? You know, aren't the SNP quite nice? Your response to that would be? Ouch. Yeah. um, No, (laughs) is the answer. I mean, that's one of the frustrations we've seen. We see it in the London Commentariat quite a lot, that they quite like the the idea of the SNP as being this insurgent force coming to stick it to Boris every now and again. But actually, um, they are nationalists in the same way that Brexiteers are nationalists. You know, if for all that live down south of the border, think of the idea of self-determination as being some kind of cuddly option. Yeah, self-determination matters if you're being oppressed or if you're um, trying to escape a civil war or something like that. But Scotland is none of those things. And, and actually, we have been trapped in this clash of nationalisms in Scotland, by which I mean the nationalism of Boris Johnson's Brexiteers, but also the nationalism of the SNP. Um, and they are as uh, driven by identity and uh, pine for ancient nations that they mythologise about in the same way that, that the UKIP and the Brexit Party do. So, so Lib Dems should not have the walls wool pulled over their eyes about Nicola Sturgeon of the SNP. They are just as antagonistic and nationalist as, as the Brexiteers. And before David comes in, I suppose one of the things that I was reading your your the transcript of your speech when you became leader and the idea, it must be very difficult. And that was all about hope and a better future. It, dealing with two different sets of nationalists, both in Boris Johnson in, uh, with English nationalism and then Nicola Sturgeon, the SNP with Scottish nationalism, while trying to say, look, this, this, we can do better than this. That's a tough gig to have. It, it is. And, and I think that actually, though, it's a, a tremendous opportunity for our party as well, because um, I, I've knocked um, tens of thousands of doors in the last few years um, and people are sick of that constitutional washing machine. They are fed up of the, um, the sum total of public debate in this country being categorised as whether you're for another independence referendum or you're against it. I mean, there are warning lights blinking across the, across the dashboard of public policy in Scotland, whether that's in the fact that more than a thousand kids are waiting two years for first-line adolescent mental health care, or it's the fact that Scotland has the worst drug death rate in the entire world. I mean, these are things that the business of government should be focused on, yet we have been held back by ministerial disinterest in all of these things. Why? Because they are chasing that greater prize of separation from the UK. Hello, John from the Lib Dem podcast here. We are delighted to say that this episode is sponsored by Prater Reigns. Now more than ever, you need a professional-looking online presence and website. Praetorains have been helping Liberal Democrat campaigns succeed for 18 years. 
Their LibDem Foci package combines a website, social media and email system to help LibDems win. You'll receive great support from real people, fair pricing and a huge range of features to choose from. Praetor Reigns are already the bespoke developers for Lighthouse, LibDem Draw Online and the LD directory. They combine a talented system design with an unrivaled understanding of our party, our data and our systems. To find out more, check out the Praetor Reigns website at praetorains.co.uk slash liberal-democrats. Yeah, Alec, it's, it's nice to see you and appreciate you coming on and obviously good to good to chat. We, we talked about a little bit, John started off talking about, you know, sort of the English party and certain members of the English Liberal Democrats thinking the SNP are, are lovely and cuddly. Um, just to kind of take it slightly back, what would you say to people who perhaps south of the border accuse us as Scottish Liberal Democrats of of going towards a, a UK nationalistic uh, language and really pushing the UK? What, what would your thoughts be on that? I, I mean, I think that's a fair question. But what I would say is, don't. I'm, I'm trying to distinguish ourselves from the Conservatives. And I've been asked many times if I would stand with the Conservatives to defend our place in the UK in a future referendum. There was a reason why when Douglas Ross, who was the leader of the Scottish Tories, when he asked Anasawa, the Labour leader, and Willie Rennie, for a pan-unionist alliance that both of them rightly refused him. Why? Because Douglas was trying to get us to subscribe to the Conservative vision of this bitter, broken United Kingdom. I do not subscribe to that at all. I believe in what Britain can be, that open, internationalist outlook, welcoming country that we used to be and we are celebrated for in periods in our history. Um, so I, I'm not a British nationalist, I'm, I'm an internationalist and, and my uh, devastation at the, what happened with Brexit and leaving the, United, uh, the European Union is still very raw, but I could not meet the loss of one international union I care about by jettisoning the other international union I care about, that being the United Kingdom. And the final say, thing I'll say is this, the idea that Scottish independence is a fast-track way back for Remainers in Scotland into the European Union is a fantasy. It is a mirage. Um, first of all, we wouldn't have a referendum for years because we would need to understand what the divorce bill from the rest of the UK looked like. We'd need to win that. There's no guarantee of that because actually there's a big chunk of Scotland that is, is very Eurosceptic. Um, but also, um, the European Union may not have this for years. They may not entertain our membership because the SP have said that they want... Scotland to keep using the pound. EU wouldn't let us join if we're using the currency of a non-member state. And our deficit, we have been under, we have been subsidised by Westminster for need to pay down a monstrous deficit, even just to get to the races in terms of accession. So it's not it, it's not a question of being a Brit nationalist. It's about being an internationalist and recognising, holding on to the union we've got and working with our partners in the rest of the UK to forge closer links with the EU going forward. Thank you. I just want to take it back slightly because obviously we're, we're introducing you as the new leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats and congratulate you, first of all, on that win. And also wanted to, for anybody who's listening to the podcast that doesn't know, um, Alex is now obviously the highest polling politician by votes in the Scottish Parliament, beating out the second place by about 9,000 votes. So congratulations on that as well. But I just wanted to, for people who maybe don't know you, know your background, what I really wanted to ask is, what led you to liberalism? What makes you a liberal democrat? And how did you get involved in politics? Well, I think there's um, there's two things. Firstly, family. 
So um, my dad was a member that is still a member of the party um, and had me delivering leaflets for Ming Campbell in 1987 in Good Mornings when I was 10 years old. Um, I was in the political wilderness while I was a student. I, I sort of ran for student political elections on the banner of independent left. Um, but but actually very soon realised that the left wing in student politics that are completely, well, without reason or argument. And, and I just... I, I didn't like the, the cut of their jibs. So I realised that actually I'm far more centrist, moderate. I'm definitely on the left wing of the party. But the other thing I think is, is my Quakerism. It's not something I talk about a great deal. I'm not particularly religious, but I am a, a Quaker by choice rather than by birthright. And Quakers, I think, um, are very close to liberals in a lot of ways. We believe in fairness. We believe in equality. We believe in social mobility and in conflict resolution through non-violence internationalism so it's sometimes hard for me to see where my quakerism stops and my liberalism begins but they walk in step and they've kind of defined my career absolutely and what's an interesting aspect as well is obviously we, we talked before the podcast started about you obviously come from Lancashire originally um obviously I guess you are really the definition of what a, a modern Brit is uh, you know you, you've moved from England to Scotland you've made that your home but interestingly enough, I was looking at your family background, and I believe that you are not actually the first politician uh, from the, the Cole Hamilton family. Your ancestors were, in fact, uh, members of parliaments in Ireland and the United Kingdom. That's right. So um, the first Cole Hamilton, when Arthur Cole married Letitia Hamilton in 1780, that, that formed the name, um, he was MP for Tyrone. And um, fascinatingly, um, was a contemporary of Wilberforce and the Pitt government and the rest of it, he's a Tory, so I'm not entirely sure he voted the right way on the abolition of slavery. <laughs> but I, think I'm, I like to think I'm writing some historical wrongs here. But uh, yeah, I don't think he was, I don't think he really set the heather alight. I think that I've tried to do some research and the, the only thing I can find about him of note in the sort of press of that time was that he once threw a glass at the head of a blind fiddler for playing a sectarian <laughs> song in a pub in Belfast. But um, that, that's about as far as I've got into his history. <laughs> it sounds like he might have been a bit of a character then. Uh, <laughs> so uh, just taking it back to obviously, um, you know, since you've taken on the leadership and, and obviously you've managed to get the party quite a lot in the press in terms of what's going on in Scotland at the moment, is really we trying to recover from coronavirus. And again, we see the SNP shifting focus away from the problem that's in front of them towards saying, well, we're coming towards another referendum, uh, perhaps next year or 2023. But I really wanted to get your thoughts on, obviously, uh, Nicola Sturgeon's now entered into an agreement with the Scottish Green Party. The Scottish Green Party, I believe, are really pushing towards making sure there's another independence referendum. Do you think this is an absolute travesty to move us into talking about another referendum when we're still dealing with COVID and its after effects? Yes. And I mentioned earlier about the warning lights blinking across the dashboard in terms of public policy problems that the SNP had. And it rather cynically used the pandemic to defer action on a range of issues that required their attention, whether that was the rollout of publicly funded childcare, the mental health weights, the educational attainment gaps, the fact that you had patients who'd been sent a letter saying they were legally obliged to be seen within 12 weeks when there wasn't a hope in hell that they'd be seen in 50 weeks. You know, these are the problems that we should be dealing with. And yet 
the SNP said, actually, we can't deal with these right now because everything needs to be focused on the pandemic. And yet, and yet, in the programme for government last year, the SNP, the First Minister, found time to make room in the legislative agenda for a bill around the mechanics of another second independence referendum. It is... It is entirely designed to keep her troops marching. And, and I think it's an outrage that the party of Robin Harper, the Green Party, but Robin Harper um, is an old friend of mine and, and was a, kicked against the old order of things and, and fought for reform alongside Lib Dems for a long time, that his legacy has been laid low by Patrick Harvey and Lorna Slater. That, the first thing in the first line of the partnership agreement is not about the climate emergency. It is about driving for another independence referendum. I cannot understand why on the eve of COP26 that, that this would be the, the focus of their partnership agreement. And, and Robin Harper, the, the original founder of the Greens in Scotland, um, would not have sacrificed nationalism for environmentalism or vice versa rather, because he didn't support Scottish independence. He, he was a unionist, he is a unionist. Um, and, and I think that's deeply sad. So, so I, my message is to those Green Party voters who don't want Scotland to leave the UK, and actually there are more than half of them because they did a poll on that. Um, if you want a party that will fight the climate emergency with ferocity, but without the baggage of nationalism, which now inexplicably comes with the Green Party, you've got to come with us. You've got to vote with them. And I'm interested because you used, sorry, David, just... Because in your speech, you talk about the baggage of nationalism. And so far in this conversation, we've talked a, a lot. Again, it's just gone on to the, the constitutional issues instead of actually there are really fundamental problems happening within Scotland that all the oxygen gets sucked out from actually being talked about that and is probably not known at all. I mean, I we have a kind of a meetings here in Lancashire about, you know, pro-EU uh, kind of meetings, etc. And all these people, again, from different political positions say, you know what? If Scotland goes independent, I think I'll I'll move there. But actually, they have no idea about some. And I say, to, and I say to them, look, have you looked at the SNP's record in Scotland, the domestic issues? And I think that gets missed. And we've done, we've almost done it again in this meeting. That's exactly right, and and it's drowned out by the the promise of this prize. And, and Nicola Sturgeon and and the party apparatchiks around her have been very clever in wearing the clothes of progressive politics and talking the talk of the sort of progressive centre-left um, to try and capture a broad base of, of people. Um, and they managed to, to just, there's, there's this expression, it's a Scots expression that we use up here or is used up here, which is called wished for Indy, as in hold your tongue for Indy, as in don't mention the problems because the prize is just over the horizon and they keep everybody marching, they keep... Um, everybody's attention on that and they've got this broad coalition and there's also a, a, there's a fallacy John that you know that the SNP have tried to spin as well that we have some kind of moral superiority um, mm. in Scotland that we don't vote for the parties of the hard left well we do I mean they, that happens in European elections we had a Brexit MEP like everybody else but we don't vote for the hard left because the dark xenophobic underbelly of Scottish politics is there are actually all voting SNP because you know, there, there is a, a definitely a xenophobic wing to the SNP, and I make no apology for bringing light to that. And, and the evidence I give you is when we were talking about the coronavirus and public policy measures that might adopt it, and when the First Minister hinted that she might close the border between Scotland and England, you had wilder outriders of the SNP blockading Gretna, shouting at English motorists. And that's, that's the dark side of Scottish politics. And I would say that just just to caveat that as well, it's not just 
uh, activists. I mean, you have the leader of the SNP in Westminster uh, causing Twitter pylons to photographers who perhaps, you know, were, were up in Scotland and were there as of their right. Um, so it seems to be that it's not just activists that's been engaged with by the politicians themselves. But we talked about the failings here of the SNP government. I mean, time and time again, the, you know, this week, another failing of uh, of the Ferguson shipyard, which is where I'm from originally, uh, but obviously as well, you know, the health service is failing in Scotland. You're obviously going to be questioning the First Minister today on ambulance waiting times, which is a, an absolute travesty. Education's failing our young children. You know, again, the, the Tories get a lot of flack for what happened last year with the exams, and, and that seemed to sort of be missed for the SNP. They didn't get as nearly as much flack. What really do you think it's going to take for people to understand that there, time and time again, there's failings from all wings of the SNP, even down to Glasgow City Council and its waste management? What do we need to do to cut that message across? I think that will happen organically. And it, I say that because it did. And we were very nearly, uh, we very it got very close to hauling the scales away from people's eyes on this. And then two things happened. I'll come on to that in a sec. So, so midterm last session, kind of 20... Uh, 17, if you remember, the SNP lost a lot of um, Westminster seats. And that was largely because people were fed up of the constant drive for another referendum and they started to wake up to the failings of the SNP, of which they are legion. Um, but then two things happened. Firstly, the general election of 2019. Um, and Nicola triangulated that about not being a referendum on a referendum. It was a it was about who do you want, Nicola or Boris? And she successfully, I think, managed to persuade people that they probably wanted her over Boris. Um, but then the, the other thing I think that came up immediately hot on the heels of that was the pandemic. And Scotland made the same mistakes as England. But what I think Nicola Sturgeon probably did better was the presentation of yeah. that. And she she captured that. She She reached out into homes where she would normally be switched off um, of people who were terrified of what this threat meant, what the pandemic meant. And every lunchtime, she presented in a very solemn managerial way the new health guidance and the new measures that her government were considering. And, and I picked that up on the doors, and we, we were allowed to knock doors from August last year, and I was knocking doors, and it was devastating to find people that I had always found as either solid Lib Dems or even Conservatives saying, do you know what, though, she's done such a good job, I think I probably will vote for her. And it, it rehabilitated the SNP. They capitalised on that public need for reassurance, and they offered that reassurance. And even though the, the decisions that were made in the foothills of the pandemic were catastrophic, particularly to decamp people with the virus out of hospitals into care homes, um, were devastating. But they, they did it in a very solemn managerial way. And, and I think it, get, it gave them a kind of get-out-of-jail card on the, all those other failings that can't last and it won't last and so i think that, that again organically people will wake up to their feelings again i think you should obviously we should caveat all of the elections that we've just had both the the conservatives in england the labor in wales and the SNP in scotland all got a bit of a rally around the flag boost and you're seeing it now that that though that is now slipping and i suppose actually for the lib dems who Okay, we lost a seat in Scotland, but actually we did very well. Obviously, your election was tremendous, etc. To actually have hold where we were, 
given that kind of effect was actually something we can actually build on. Because like I said, a lot of people thought, well, are the Lib Dems a spent force in Scotland? Well, actually, I think we're in a very good place to plat a good platform to which to build and be that kind of that sensible, moderate kind of centre-left kind of force that actually Scotland probably needs. Exactly right. Exactly right. And and actually, the election campaign was very telling in May because Nicola tried to make it about a mandate for a second referendum. Um, and then about three weeks out from the poll, she saw it was hurting her. And the polls for uh, the SNP were in decline. And so they pivoted and they started sending out leaflets to every house in Scotland with an empty lectern saying, who do you want to lead us out of the pandemic? Hmm. And, so, and I think you're right. There was a feeling of backing a wartime government. Um, and that's why it happened across the board, but that's that's going to be short-lived, I'm hopeful. And, and yes, and you can see, John, we had two spectacular local council by-election wins, and they're, they're more spectacular in Scotland because they're STV wards, so they're much bigger council mm. wards than, than listeners in England might be used to. And we won them from nowhere. So um, we, we won in Wick, in Jamie Stone's constituency, from last, we were dead last in the last council elections and on 3%, and we topped the poll there. Inverness West, in a, in a constituency we hold nowhere, and we won it again from nowhere, and, and people didn't see us coming. So it gives me such hope that there are green shoots of recovery everywhere I look. Okay. I, I just wanted to really touch on something else, obviously, that's come up in the news quite significantly, and obviously you've been the kind of rallying point for this, and obviously that's the introduction of vaccine passports. Um, I obviously stood against Patrick Harvey, who you know vehemently denied that he wanted to see vaccine passports introduced in Scotland and now seems to have done a complete U-turn to back his new government agreement. I just wanted to get your thoughts on this and really, you know, has the tide turned? Can we not stop this now? And really, how do we let people know the message around what this potentially leads to? Yes, and um, I, I think the government have miscued this, definitely. I mean, I was, it was horrifying to see Patrick Harvey and practically his first day of ministerial office just complete 180 on this, turn tail on this and, and back the government on what is a very liberal move. I mean, it looks very likely now that Scotland will stand alone in the UK as the only um, jurisdiction where the right to medical privacy is no longer assured. And that for the first time, you will have to submit your medical records, private medical data to a stranger who is not your clinician to access venues and services in our society. I mean, I can't believe I have to say this aloud, but you should never have to give a medical, your medical records to a bouncer to get into a nightclub. And that's effectively what's being asked. And, and furthermore, because we're now extending like the rest of the UK, the vaccine programme to um, everyone over 12, um, there should be no pressure on children or their families to get the vaccine because it's contingent on whether they get into a football stadium or not. And that, that's another reason why we need to scrap them now. And, I, you know, when I've been trying to, because a lot of my friends have asked, you know, oh, what's the big deal if we need to do this and so on and so forth? What I've really been trying to get across to them is, you know, from a, from a perspective of your liberties, this is something... You know, you do it once and then what's what's next? You know, it's, it's sort of a, if you if you're willing to give it up because of this, then when does it not become a case where you're not willing to say, oh, well, we've been asked to do it and I'm, and I'm willing to, to, to. Exactly. If you if you cross that line, you cross it forever. And there are circumstances where I don't know, complete hypothetical here, say that we had a massive surge in the birth rate and we were struggling to sustain it um, and then people started saying well if you're going to a nightclub we want to see that you're on some kind of contraceptive medication 
before you come in. And, you know, it, it, I mean, that's perhaps a slightly hyperbolic example, but, but once you've kind of given that away and said your right to medical privacy is no longer a right, then anything could, could come up in the future. And, and a, a more authoritarian, more right-wing government um, might use this as precedent to insist on other um, qualifying thresholds for access to freedoms in our society. You know, I think we, we have seen it elsewhere. I mean, the Patriot Act in the US has been very, very difficult to put that back in the box once it obviously comes out. These are, these are difficult subjects to obviously contemplate, but they do come up. And I think people need to realise from a, from a perspective of your own civil liberties, etc., this is, this is something that people really want to take a stand against. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that um, there's also a, a real anxiety that, you know, the, the government is very good at passing swift legislation or regulations on public health measures, but it's absolutely rubbish about the back end tech behind it. So, you know, track and trace in Scotland or test and protect, which is our version of that, um, is, is really on its knees. Um, and the Scottish government brought in with great fanfare, never recruited enough traces. And right now in Scotland, if you get a positive coronavirus case, then it will be a week before they contact you to find out who you've been in touch with and how many people are they going to go and affect. So there's no clarity on how the vaccine passport system in Scotland will A, deal with people who've had vaccinations in other jurisdictions, particularly outside of the UK. Um, they, there's no clarity on how they'll keep up with the booster program or what your requirement for that will be. Um, there's just lots of back-end issues that we've got. But then the, the other thing is on how on earth, if you're in Ibrox, which is Rangers Football Stadium in Glasgow, uh, on a Saturday, if you're a um, ticket collector at the turnstile, do you have to scan 40,000 QR codes before people get in? I mean, it's just a beggar's belief. And, and, and a lot of these um, answer, questions have not been answered yet. And I think we've seen it from Alistair Carmichael's work in, in Westminster to do with the coronavirus attack. What you were just saying, once politicians get power, it can be very difficult to get them off. And the whole the whole point we're saying is, yes, we, we believe in these liberties, etc. But there's no point in having those principles if you don't keep them when it's tough. That's it. It's yes. easy having principles when they're not challenged. But actually, it's these points that make us who we are. And actually... Furthermore, to what you've just been talking about, it's the centralising nature of the SNP government, which particularly perturbs me as well, where you think, actually, if you look at their record, it's horrendous for moving away from, well, good old-fashioned community politics, what we all believe in as Lib Dems, is almost the antithesis of what Nicola Sturgeon's doing at Holyrood. That's right, John. Um, no, absolutely. Centralising is, is something that is a, becoming a hallmark of the SNP. And you see that in the talk of the national care service that they want to bring into Scotland, which sounds cute and fluffy. In fact, it sounds very like our favourite national treasure, which is the NHS, but it's nothing like the NHS. The NHS was formed in the poverty and rubble of war and was delivered free at the point of delivery. Um, no, nobody's suggesting care will be delivered free at the point of delivery. This is window dressing for centralisation. They want to put ministers in charge of the delivery of care in Scotland. And, and yeah, I mean, vaccine passports is another it. But the Coronavirus Act in Scotland was actually, when it was first introduced, more draconian than the one in England. And I'll tell you why, because um, the SNP, unlike any other democracy in the entire world responding to the pandemic, 
suggested that we should, for the duration of the emergency, abolish jury trials. Jury trials in Scotland had continued unabated for 800 years. They had been, they had survived wars, they had survived pandemics, and yet the SNP decided that actually this was a, a pretty good wheeze to rattle through the docket of the backlog, and there was a backlog of criminal trials, there still is, um, but, but we stood our ground. And I worked, did some really good work with colleagues um, in the Faculty of Advocates and in the at the bar and in the judiciary, and we stopped it um, because again it was unnecessary. We actually uh, suggested to them you could you could hold trials via video link to cinemas, and that's what they're doing. Our jury sit in cinemas, but that wouldn't have happened had, had we in the Lib Dems not taken a stand against it. And I just wanted to touch on again um, something that probably had. For, for maybe anybody who outside of Scotland didn't know who you are, it was probably maybe the biggest introduction to them. And you've spoke about this in, in the last week or so, which was obviously in the last term of Parliament, the rather contentious uh, Alex Salmond inquiry. Uh, and you mentioned, obviously, I believe you said you have some regrets over perhaps your part in that. I just wanted to maybe touch on what your thoughts are in retrospect about it. And um, in, in my opinion, I thought yourself and Jackie Bailey probably came out of it the best in terms of all the people that had to be involved in that shambles. Well, thanks, David. I appreciate that. I mean, I don't I don't regret my behaviour um, or anything I did. I regret my involvement in it, though. I mean, there were several reasons why. I mean, most, first and foremost, became quite clear early on that this was becoming it became a it was going to become a circus and it did become a circus I don't think there was um any more light shed on the matter there was a lot of smoke and heat but certainly no light um I, I've said in, in the press and with her permission that, that I have been supporting a complainer who came to me um independently and um I could see what it was doing to her each twist and turn and and particularly the the longevity of it, the um, the detail that we went into, and I just thought, well, that must be happening to everyone who's affected by this tawdry um, affair. And um, and it took up so much oxygen, and it was exhausting, and it was dark. It was so dark, and you just felt that you at times were refereeing this internecine SNP culture war. Um, and yeah, I I didn't enjoy it. Um, I don't think I learned anything, and I don't think we achieved anything. It certainly seemed the, the only thing that perhaps I think came out of this was there was a complete failing of the woman who came forward with the allegations. And it seems that that all got lost amongst the circus that was Nicola Sturgeon versus Alex Salmond. Yeah. And, and we produced a very substantial report about what needs to change. And to my knowledge, that is gathering dust on a civil service shelf somewhere and nobody's doing anything to rectify it. So, I mean, honestly, if you were... Um, well, if you were a, a civil servant of any gender, um, would you have any faith in reporting sexual harassment or allegations of sexual harassment in the Scottish government right now? No, you wouldn't, because you, you know, they were thrown under the bus. They were thrown under the bus. They became collateral damage in a, an internal civil war within the party of government. And just, um, uh, you know, appreciate this is this is going to be a rather broad question, but if uh, if you can uh, give me the opportunity, so. You're the new leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats and, and you talked about your hopes for really Scotland and the party as a whole. But what we we had a very interesting discussion the other day there with Leila Moran about what a liberal international policy looks like. So what does a liberal Scotland look like? Or what if Alex Cole, Alec Cole, Alex Cole Hamilton, sorry, if Alex Cole Hamilton was the first minister of Scotland, what would Scotland look like under your leadership? 
Well, firstly, we, we'd stop talking about the constitution. We'd, we'd look to work with colleagues in the rest of the UK to reform the UK from within and make it better, make it what it could be again. And um, secondly, we prioritise the day job, you know, the really important stuff. And for liberals, that's about social mobility, about ending tackling child poverty by improving access and attainment in education. It's about dealing with the, the crisis stuff in our mental health service, again, which has largely been caused by ministerial disinterest because people don't really suffer in the way that they do in Scotland and other parts of the UK. I think we need to treat people like grown-ups as well. I want to start doing that. I think at the moment, you know, Nicola Sturgeon, when she was health secretary, passed a, a law saying that there was would be a guaranteed treatment time of 12 weeks for any patient. That once you agreed a, a course of action with your consultant, that treatment would begin within 12 weeks of that decision. Um, and everyone gets a letter saying that they'll be seen in 12 weeks. People make plans around that. People decide that they can go on that um, once in a lifetime round world, world trip after their convalescence, only to be told, you know, get that annoying sense in their gut that they've not heard anything from the hospital come week 10. They ring up and they say, oh, yeah, you're not going to be seen for a year or, or more than that. And it's devastating. And again, I think people would understand if they were straight and said, look, this is when we expect you're going to be seen. It's probably going to be 35, 40 weeks. People might, if they've got independent means, might go private and um, say, OK, well, I'll give my space to somebody else. Or they might just say, OK, well, that's going to be a long time, but at least I know. But we're not doing that. So treat, I mean, sorry, I got into a bit of detail about that, but I think it was important because it's about treating people like grown-ups and, and being straight with them about the problems in public service and and um, and how long how it's going to impact on them. John? Yeah, so I, again, I want to kind of make sure we have a kind of positive view of this as well. You know, I, I don't like yeah, to talk about the opposition. Everything is rubbish. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, I do think, the you know, the Lib Dems in Scotland always fill me with a, a great sense of pride, even though, you know, I'm, I'm not Scottish. I'm, I'm from the borders originally, I'm, well, I'm on the English side of it. You know, I look up to, to the wonderful teams that you have there and just think you guys really do punch above your weight and actually so you know we're not a million miles away from a general election you know we're probably halfway there now so how are the what's the kind of health of the scottish lib dems running up to that election what do you where, where do you want to be in after the next westminster election well that's kind of easy to say john and, and yeah i should apologize to listeners i have been rather gloomy <laughs> it's quite, quite <laughs> i mean i mean after everything we've been through scotland needs new hope right now and i think that can come from the lib dems um i think the people we stand where so many scots stand who are not enamored with either nicholas sturgeon or boris johnson they don't have to believe that that's the only choice that we have i think we surprised everyone and and david mentioned it earlier that you know despite it becoming such a binary choice in scotland between the union with with the conservatives or independence with the snp that we managed to hold our ground and in fact you know, run it up in our constituencies, in our health constituencies. And um, my hope is growth. You know, I think we've got an opportunity, depending on boundaries, of course. I mean, they might just cancel uh, the existence of the one seat that we could easily take in Eastern Bartonshire. Um, but we're, we're going to fight, travel, move forward with optimism and fight to win that. Um, and, and I'm confident, you know, given the results in our constituencies that, that we can easily hold and, and improve on our position. Um, and let's remember, you know, we are a significant chunk of the UK Parliamentary Party. We we have saved the UK Parliamentary Party in the last couple of elections by returning as many MPs as we do. And, and remember that's against the context. That's in a five-cornered fight. We did, 
it, it's not us v the Tories v Labour, it's us v the Tories v this megalith of the SNP that, that take 50% of the vote just by rolling out of bed. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic and hopeful. Final question from you, David. Yeah, so final question from me, Alex, and this, this might be a bit of a, of, a, of a strange one, but obviously we, we had a discussion with Willie Rennie, who was obviously leader of the, the party in Scotland for 10 years, and, and obviously everybody has different leadership styles, and I wouldn't expect you to say well, I'm going to carry on in the same, but does this mean the end of the big Willie Rennie stunts, or will there perhaps be any Alex Cole Hamilton big stunts? Could we see you perhaps... Uh, parachuting from a plane. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was actually part of a lot of the stunts that Willie Rennie pulled. I was always the kind of Robin to his Batman in those uh, photo shoots. Um, so they will continue to a degree. They're, absolutely. I mean, look, just want to say a word about Willie. Um, he's one of my best friends. He has the most recognisable smile in Scottish politics. And I think thanks to him, he has captured a kind of affection for the party that had been lost to us during the days of coalition. Um, there was a warmth for us now, and that was down to him, for no question. And, and, and he, I think, consolidated our survival. People aren't talking about our extinction anymore in Scotland. They know we're here to stay. But the, the analogy I use is, is slightly a stretched one, but it's, it's quite a good one. I mean, there's a great film called Fire in Babylon, which is about the rise of the West Indian cricket team. And for years, the, the West Indies had been described as Calypso cricket. They've been the halftime entertainment. You know, they, they were really great crowd pleasers. They're really full of personality, but didn't win many trophies. And then in the 70s, they introduced the world to a new kind of fast bowling and started breaking jaws and then dominated the game for, for long. So I, for, for, for many, many years after. And and I, I think that we've been through the kind of Calypso cricket phase with, with Willie, that we're thought of in warm ways and, and with affection by the public, but we've not won many trophies. I think I think what I want to do is keep some of that going, but also bring on the fast bowlers. Well, thank you so much for your time, Ted. We know how busy you are, so we really do appreciate all your time, Alex. And like I said, always on the podcast, you and your team, or a free, free invitation, come back whenever you want. If you need to, to, to sound off about anything that's happening north of the board, you'll always have that. an audience here. Um, but no, on behalf of myself and David and Alex, thank you everyone who's tuned in, whether this is listening on the podcast, wherever you get it, or on Facebook and uh, YouTube. We really appreciate you logging in. Do follow uh, Alex on Twitter, always good fun. See what kind of stunts he now does as Batman, which will be uh, really interesting. And to make sure you follow David as well all the links will be in the show notes but thank you so much for watching thank you alex once again and we'll be back with another episode very soon thank you